If you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 36 through 38, and I think I'd mention those of you who get the, um, the emails, one of my favorite people in all of Scripture, although everything we know about her is in these three verses. Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38, hear now the word of God. Now there was one, Anna, prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instance, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray. Father God, we come upon this, this woman, Anna, and according to your wisdom, you've chosen to record her in this gospel, and we do pray that we would understand why. Why would you have us read of this of this woman and giving us just these three verses about her? So we do pray that by your spirit, you grant us the wisdom to extract from this what you would have us know, that it might tell us of you, and it might also tell us how we ought to respond. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to say, I've never quite understood pastors, uh, you know, who are in relatively good health, who choose to retire. I'm like, what are you going to do? I mean, watch Barney Miller, Matlock. I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, I have to say, I was in my 50s, and I had been in the ministry at that point for over 20 years before I even had an inkling of what I was doing. And I've sat down with pastors older than myself, you know, who are thinking about retiring, and... um, I've encouraged them not to. I've encouraged them to stay the course. I tell them things like, you know, Ben Franklin was almost 80 when he invented bifocals. If, 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 you didn't, if he followed your example, we wouldn't have bifocals. <laughs> he was over 80 at the Constitutional Convention. He's like going to Presbytery in his 80s, you know. I feel like they're quitting in their prime. R.C. Sproul, one of my favorites, was almost 80 when the Lord took him. And maybe you recall watching him in the, you know, and I don't know how long it was before he passed away, but he's on stage with those little oxygen things in his nose, still ministering for as long as he could. Almost 80. John MacArthur, 84, still upsetting people from his pulpit. (laughs) I say that in the most positive way. But, you know, that's Ben Franklin and R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur. Does the Bible say anything about this? Does the Bible say anything about, hey, let's go. You got to keep, keep fighting. A member of our uh, church, and I can't even now remember who it was, but it was only like a week or two ago, tried to encourage me and succeeded with this reference from, from Joshua 13.1, where we read, 
Now Joshua was old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you are old, advanced in years. (laughs) (laughs) And there remains very much land yet to be possessed. I would say that if you continue to draw breath, there is land yet to be possessed. And I, I think by land yet to be possessed, what we're talking about, if you understand the nature of the land in the Old Testament and the Great Commission in the New, in the New Testament, you're talking about bringing the message of the gospel to the world. That there's land yet to be possessed. Has everybody heard the gospel? Has it gone out everywhere? And I think that was the message to Joshua, and that's the way we need to understand it, that if God is keeping us alive, there's a job to do. As I've grown older, I've come to really appreciate the spirit of Caleb. Interesting, Joshua and Caleb, right? They were the two spies who, uh, you know, when they were out in the wilderness, came, looked, spied on the Canaanites and said, hey, we can take them. And they were the only ones, Right? They were the only ones who thought that. And, and we have a situation with Caleb many years later, anticipating another battle, right? So he's not 40-year-old Caleb. Now he's in his 80s. And we read this in Joshua 14, 10, and 11. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive. I mean, I like the fact he's like going, the Lord has me living. Just as he said, These 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. So he's recounting what happened back then. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. And I am still strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My, I'd love to just hear his voice saying this. My strength now is as my strength was then. For war and for going and for coming. You got to appreciate, right? This 85-year-old guy going, I'm ready to fight. I'm not staying home watching Matlock. I remember when I was a kid, I had this uh, news clipping up in my uh, bedroom for a long time. You know, my, the very first sport I ever learned was boxing. My dad was a boxer, and so he taught me how to box. And we used to watch boxing all the time. And... And I, I, one day I read this article in, you know, some newspaper, and I cut it out. And it was a story about Jack Dempsey. How many of you ever heard of Jack Dempsey? He, okay, oh, nice. He was heavyweight champion of the world, the Manasseh Mauler, like in the 20s. But this was like when I was in high school, so now we're in the 70s, and Jack Dempsey's like in his 70s. And the story in the paper recounted him walking through Central Park, and two 20-year-old guys decided to mug him obviously not knowing who he was, but he's like 75 years old. And the guy writing the article wrote it so well, I'm not going to be able to recount it as well, but it was kind of like, you know, two punches and the mugging was over. (laughs) You know, you're still good for a couple of punches, right? You may not have the endurance. You know, I don't know if Caleb, if they started running, if he'd be like in the back a little bit. But I guarantee you this, the first guy that he encountered was in a lot of trouble. Now, I'm not saying this to encourage undue pugnacity. I'm not going to go out and start getting in a fight. We have to understand that this whole message of warfare 
has in our new covenant application this idea that we're in spiritual warfare. There's a fight that we are called to be in. It's, you know, we like to talk, talk about our Christian walk. I had a buddy years ago, he's, he's gone to be with the Lord. He didn't like that kind of language. He goes, it's not a walk, it's a war. It's a fight. And we've got to recognize at some level that we're in a fight. Well, Luke now introduces us to this obscure elderly woman. But she is a fighter. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. So everything we know about Anna is contained in these three verses. I've done a lot of memorials over the years. And sometimes I do memorial services with people I don't really even know. Somebody, they just call me and they're like, hey, can you officiate this service? And, you know, I'll meet with them. But I don't really know the person. But then somebody will get up and give a eulogy. And so you learn a little bit about the person. And sometimes eulogies are great and sometimes they're not so great. We've got a three-verse eulogy, right? Everything we know about her is right here in these verses. First of all, her name was Anna, which means grace. We learned that she was a prophetess. Well, what does that mean, that she was a prophetess? A couple of things, and that was she spoke the infallible, inerrant word of God. But above and beyond that, we might not be surprised, but there, there had been hundreds of years of silence. From Malachi to John the Baptist, you had a 400-year period when, when there was, if I can use the biblical way to put this, when there was a famine in the land. Matter of fact, we read in Amos, it says it this way, Amos 8, 11, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. So there had been a 400-year famine, and all of a sudden you've got, all of a sudden God is speaking. And Anna's one of the ones that he is speaking through. She's, a, she's part of a very small sorority of women who are called this, by the way, in Scripture. We have Miriam, the sister of Moses, Deborah, the judge, Huldah, the wife of Shalom, Isaiah's wife, and then Philip's, in the New Testament, Philip's four unmarried daughters, prophetesses. Well, I mention that because even in Scripture, that's rare. I cringe when I hear anybody refer to themselves today as a prophet. Or an apostle. Come here, Apostle Fred. Or, or Prophet Jill, or something like that. We need to recognize that this, this gift is, is, was rare then and is not extant today. We have, we have prophecy. It's on your laps. It's called the Bible. That's the prophetic word of God. Luke also speaks of her lineage. Her father was Phanuel. That means face of God, and she was of the tribe of Asher, so she was an Israelite, part of the covenant people of God. So we're getting a little bit of a history of who she was. He then gives her age and a little bit of her personal history. She'd been married seven years before becoming a widow. Now, now, now he doesn't tell us why he's sharing that with us, right? And so what I'm about to say 
is a bit speculative on my part. Although I've seen enough people in the ministry who have not gotten what they want and have become bitter. Who God said, no, I know you want to do this, but we're going to do that. And they're like, no. I I don't doubt that as a young woman, Anna had a plan, right? Which included a husband and a family. But apparently God had a different plan. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think there's something to be said for planning. I think we should not not plan at all. I think there's something true in that adage, right? If you, if you fail to plan, plan to fail. You know, I think there's some wisdom in all of that. But I think we need to be careful to keep our hands kind of open, you know, not grab it, you know, we, lest our own plans become idolatrous. That, you know, I have the way I want things to go, and if that doesn't work, God, you're in a lot of trouble. We become like spoiled children, not getting what we want. I remember early in the ministry, I was, you know, when I became a pastor, I was pretty routinely asked what my vision was for the church. And I even remember trying to come up with one, and I just wasn't very good at it. I'm like, I don't really, I don't have a vision for the church. I don't have a five-year plan. I don't have a 10-year plan. And I remember thinking, you know what, I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'll study the Bible. I'll try to give a sermon that is true to the scriptures. I'll administer the sacraments, and I'm going to be as loving as I can to the people of God and give them whatever wisdom I have to give them, depending upon their situation. That's it. And then, you know what? And let's see what God does. Let's see what his plan is. I remember in seminary, I had a professor, he's gone to be with the Lord, Wally Norling. And he was a guy who... Um, He's the guy, how many of you ever heard of Chuck Swindoll? Okay, pretty famous guy. He was at EB3 Fullerton. The church was monstrous, right? Wally was the guy who planned that whole thing out. Wally was the guy who put Chuck Swindoll into EV Free, and it got legs, and it became this big, gigantic church. And in our class, he would tell us, and I remember going to his house and hanging out. He would say, you know what? All these church growth guys keep calling me and calling Chuck, to figure out exactly what the formula was that made this all work. And he goes, I just laughed because we had no idea what we were doing. You know, sometimes God does this and sometimes he doesn't do that. The question is, are you faithful to do today what God has called you to do? As opposed to this big plan. Because it doesn't appear that, that Anna was bitter about her lot in life. That she didn't view her own plan idolatrously. We need to be careful of this whole idea of a vision. I think Proverbs 28 talks about where there is no vision, the people perish. Pretty popular verse. It was on the junior high both my sisters went to in Hermosa Beach. It's still up there. We so misinterpret that. We misinterpret it because most people when they read that, when they read where there is no vision, the people perish, the way they're reading it is where there is no dream, Right? The people perish. Where I'm not thinking about where I'm going to go. As a matter of fact, uh, as I was looking it up, the posters that go with it are this big road and you're looking down the road at what you might do because you have a dream. That's not what that passage means. The word vision there, some of your versions will say prophet. 
Basically, what that, what that means is where there is no word of God, the people perish. Not where you don't have a dream, people perish. I really appreciated Dietrich Bonhoeffer's response to this whole thing. It made me kind of feel good, maybe because I don't have a vision, you know, so sometimes it's um, confirmation bias. But nonetheless, this is what he wrote about visions, you know, this dream. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. Or to put it briefly, Proverbs 16, 9, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. That's what happened with Anna. I have no doubt that she had a plan, and the Lord said, we're going in a different direction. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. So she had long been a widow, and it's very difficult in the way this is written uh, to determine whether or not she'd been a widow for 84 years, which would make her maybe over 100, or if she was 84 years at the time of this event. I, you know, it's up in the air, at least in terms of the syntax of the, of the sentence. Most people feel like she was 84 because of her ability to be active, but we don't know, we don't know for sure. But we do know this. Now we've, Luke sets his focus on this idea that she's a widow. Widows are pretty important in the Bible. And probably most important through Luke. Luke mentions widows more than all the other gospel writers. Widows, especially in that culture, were the most vulnerable people imaginable. It's not like today. Although I have to say, having worked in a retirement home for 25 years, uh, widows can easily be neglected as well. I mean, the women tend to live longer than the guys. And they're just there and they're just looking for a visitor. You know, somebody will sit down with them, maybe read the Bible with them, uh, you know, bring the kids in so they can see children and what have you. So, so in the scriptures, widows are of great concern. They're to be honored. They're to be cared for. First, by their own families, by the way. They are to be cared for first by their own families and then, if need be, by the church. James writes, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted by the world. It would be a shame to us if there were orphans or widows and we were making no effort to minister in that capacity. God is particularly insulted with a culture of people who allow the most vulnerable people to go unchecked. And the godly widow, according to the Bible, is not sidelined. According to Paul, you know what? She may remarry. Fine, you want to get married again? Go for it. Or she may dedicate herself to other more, you know, other, I want to say more critical, but other critical 
roles, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5.5, now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So some widows might go, you know what, I'm going to spend my time praying. Praying to God, praying for the supplication, praying for God to supply the needs of others. And it seems like Anna chose the latter, right? She chose, she was probably pretty young when her husband died, and she's like, you know what, I'm going to dedicate my life full-time to the Lord. And by the way, one should not be viewed as superior to the other. Whether you choose to get married and raise a family or be a wife, or whether or not you choose to be full-time in terms of your prayer life and supplication and doing what Anna did. One is not superior to the other, but I will say this. The latter is required in both. In other words, if you're going to be married, you still have to pray. (laughs) Yeah, a bunch of little quiet, nervous laughter because you realize you may have to pray more. I think it's difficult to reduce this woman's life to three verses. But let's understand this. Her behavior, her behavior in her old age did not begin in her old age. It began as a young woman. Okay, now to be sure, you know, God has what the Bible calls his 11th hour workers, right? They come to faith at the end of their life. The thief on the cross, right? Come into faith at the very, very end of his life. He's not a second-class citizen in heaven, right? He's with Jesus in paradise, and it's not as if, like, he gets less. But I think it's of special note and honor and cheer to be able to serve God your entire life. It's a real odd conundrum people have when they're like, so you're telling me a guy can sin and sin and sin and then he comes to faith at the very end of his life and he gets to go to heaven? I've always found, I, I, not always, but I remember coming to the place where I found that to be an odd question because it's asked as if the person's life is better because they got to sin, sin, and sin. <laughs> the very question reveals kind of like a, something wrong registering in the heart as if the fact that you got to sin means you actually got away with something rather than the miserable life that living a life of sin creates. But nonetheless, if somebody is a sinner all their life and they come to faith at the end of their life, they receive the riches of heaven. But there is something beautiful about the fact that God has called you, I'm looking over here at young people, God has called you all the days of your life to serve him. And it didn't begin when she was 84 years old. So you young people who may have checked out when I was talking about Benjamin Franklin and R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and Joshua and Caleb, know this, they didn't start being that way when they were old. Joshua and Caleb, they were fighters in their youth. It is true that Ben Franklin invented bifocals when he was almost 80, but he invented swim fins when he was 11. Have you invented any swim fins? (laughs) The point here is that even though we have the record of what's going on at the end of her life, what was going on at the end of her life was something that started when she was young. 
we, we need to go down that road and continue going down that road. Now, there may be certain behaviors that have a brief shelf life, right? You don't see too many 50-year-old gymnasts and, you know, figure skaters. But there are other behaviors that you can cultivate all the days of your life that, that there is no shelf life for. Matter of fact, I would argue that the prayers and the fastings of Anna didn't diminish as she got older, that they became richer as she got older. Luke records that in her fastings and prayers, the way it's written is that she wasn't serving, certainly wasn't serving herself. All right, so, I mean, you came to church today. I understand human nature. You know, people come to church because there's some little problem they have, you know, whatever it is, you're lonely, you need to be given a little encouragement and what have you. But you know what? You need to get to the point where you realize that it's really not about you. You know, we have a ministry fair today. Maybe it's time for you to go, well, how can I serve? What can I do? Because Anna wasn't serving herself. And you know what? Even in her prayers and fastings, which I'm sure there were many beneficiaries of, she wasn't even serving others. You know who she was serving? You know the, the passage says? She was serving God. So in serving others, you're serving God. That shouldn't be shocking, right? Didn't Jesus teach? Matthew 25, 40, And the king will answer it and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So when you serve others, you're serving God. Let me, let me ask you to keep that in mind. When the person you're serving is difficult. I remember when I was a kid, I watched um, Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. Such a good movie, right? You guys familiar with Robin Hood? Okay, that's the best one with Errol Flynn. And, uh, you know, there's a scene, and I remember it struck me even as a little kid. There's a scene where he's with, like, Lady Marian or Maid Marian, and she doesn't understand why he's doing what he's doing, and he brings her, like, into the back where all the people suffering, you know, from... John's abuse and stuff, and they're all, he's walking through, and they're all getting up, and they're like, thank you, Robin, thank you, thank you so much, you know, and she's like, okay, now I understand, and I'm like, that's so cool, they were so appreciative, and I'm like, I kind of want that, I'm looking forward as a pastor for people to kind of go, thank you, Pastor Paul, we're so appreciative, <laughs> I'm going to tell you something, I've, I have to say, as I got older, I get more of that. Maybe it's out of just sympathy and, you know, <laughs> pathetic. But as a young pastor, I'm like, you know, where are all the people who are like, well, well, well done, pastor. No. <laughs> I, I found, I'm not, to, not to be mean, but I guess I'm going to be honest here. Heaven forbid. The people with the most difficulties who I've sought to help the most have been the most difficult people for me personally. You know, the people who you're kind of going, I know it's hard, I know you have troubles, I'm going to sit in the ashes with you, and then they're throwing ashes in your face. 
I mean, but you know what? I, it, there was a point in time when God told me, look at, you're not really serving them when you sit with them in the ashes, you're serving me. And then I, I developed a new appreciation for Moses, right? Because he's surrounded by what? Stiff-necked people. A new appreciation for the Apostle Paul, whose very apostleship was being questioned and what have you. You're not doing this, you're not serving others for whatever psychological income that they can generate toward you. You're doing this because God has rescued you. You're doing this, you're loving others, why? Because God has loved you. You're forgiving others, why? Because God is forgiving you. You're serving others, why? Because Christ is serving you. And we've got to get that straight, otherwise we're going to be a little bit overly particular about who we serve. Luke writes that she did not depart from the temple. Now, you know, again, you know, I do the research on that, and I'm like, what does that mean she didn't depart from the temple? I, it could be that she had an apartment in the temple. There was the opportunity for certain people to actually live in the temple. Or that could just be hyperbole, and it could be like she was regularly in the temple. It could be either one. I think the point here is that she was like a, a fixture in the temple. Matter of fact, verse 38, when it says, and immediately coming in, I looked at that and I'm like, all right, if she was coming in, she must have not been in the temple. But she might have been in some other part of the temple. So anyway, the point is that she was a fixture in the temple. So that's where she was, in the temple, praying, fasting, prophesying. It's highly unlikely that she was alive when the temple was destroyed 70 years later. But I wonder how that would have made her feel. Right? She's there day and night in the temple. That's where, that's where the ministry was taking place. About 30 plus years later, Jesus will give a sermon going, the temple's going to be destroyed. About 35 or 40 years after that, the temple is destroyed. And I'm looking at that going, I wonder how Anna would have felt when she looked at the, if she were to look at the rubble, not one stone left upon the other. And I look at this and I think, she's a, I think she's a woman to be imitated. I don't, I don't think that this is just being recorded because it's interesting. I think in a certain sense, we all should be looking at this and going, what are things about Anna that I can, I can imitate? And how, how do we imitate somebody who minister day and night in the temple when we haven't got a temple? Like how, do, how do I do that? But we do have a temple, don't we? See, if we, you know, when Jesus said, it's good for me to leave, he wasn't just kind of going, hey, don't be sad that I leave. Because there was something about the new covenant, something about this great commission that now would become universal. Like in the Old Testament, if you wanted to be a person of God, you had to come to Israel. You had to come to the temple. But in the new covenant, how does the Great Commission begin? Go. It was a go, not a come. 
And we do have a temple in John chapter 2. And by the way, I, I think we need to be careful not getting all wrapped up in the rebuilding of a temple. I've told you this before, right? I was at a baseball game, and I was sitting next to this couple, with, and they found out I was a pastor. And the, like the very first thing they asked me was, so you think the temple's going to be rebuilt? They're rebuilding the temple, you know, in Jerusalem and all this eschatology that I think is end-time stuff that, in my opinion, is inaccurate. And they're like, do you think the temple's going to be rebuilt? And I go, you know what? I think it already has been rebuilt. And then they thought, you know, I could tell. It was like, oh, you got the intelligence report, you know, and all that stuff. And they're like, you know, I'm like, it was the body of Christ. And they were so disappointed. They're like, oh, well, yeah, that. Okay, you're missing everything. If you get all excited about the temple, but you're not excited about the body of Christ. And it's not as if I'm just making this up. We read in John chapter 2, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. And then John gives his little commentary. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So in a very primary sense, when we talk about this temple, we're talking about the body of Christ. The body of Christ is found and it is permanently established in his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. That's the body of Christ. But when the church meets, when the word of God is proclaimed, when his praises are sung, when we do what we're doing right now, Jesus considers this his body. Colossians 1.18, I could have picked one of 50 verses. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. I can only guess that had Anna seen the temple destroyed, she might have been touched with a little bit of nagging nostalgia. Right? Hey, that's the building I used to go to. But as a woman of faith, as somebody who really seemed to understand, she might have looked at the temple the way a wife or a mother might have been looking at a photograph of a son or a husband who'd been deployed. Right? So you, you're, you're like going, this is telling me, this is, this is me reminding me of my son, my husband. But you know what? When the son or the husband walks in the door, you put the picture down. Right? Because the real thing is here. And I have no doubt that had she lived, she would have recognized it's time for me to leave the temple because the true temple has arrived. And in that respect, we can all imitate, we can all imitate Anna. It's not just some historical oddity. And coming in that instance, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Anna had not grown weary of doing good, right? 84 years old. I'm, I mean, I'm just wondering, you know, in my mind's eye, I'm seeing her get up ready for the day. She's not just 
phoning it in. Right? She's not lacking excitement. Her father's name, Fanuel, means face of God, but now she's looking, as, as it were, at the face of God in the baby Jesus. Like what a gift I'm sure she felt she had, similar to Simeon. Like, you know, now I can die in peace. I know that God is beginning his great work. And by the way, you know, in, 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 in many ways, the baby Jesus was just a baby, right? He didn't come with a tag. He didn't come, but he did come with an announcement, right? Announcements were made. And by the way, that's what's supposed to happen in pulpits to this very day. Announcements are to be made. That there is a king who reigns. There is a savior who reigns. You've got to keep, to make, keep making that announcement. And Anna, not only being a prophetess, but being a woman of faith, when she heard that announcement, she knew that all of her dreams were wrapped up in that baby. This is it. This is what it's all about. This baby who's going to grow up and take upon himself the sins of the world. And she bursts forth in gratitude. Thanks to the Lord. Thanks to the Lord. I don't know, you know, as I hear sometimes people pray, myself included. Thank you, Lord, for this day. You know, a lot of us, we like to start our prayers that way. I do. Thank you, Lord, for this day. And I'm like, yeah, you don't sound all that grateful. Thank you, Lord. Really? Because if I, if I did for you what God did for you, and you said, thank you, Paul, I'd be like, well, how about a little more enthusiasm in that? I'm sure when she said, Thanks to the Lord. You know, she was 84, maybe 105, who knows. But there was something in that tone, right? But that's not all she did. There is a very popular and inaccurate adage that I would like to address as we finish here. It goes something like this. Share the gospel, if necessary, use words. (laughs) Yeah. Look, I appreciate the sentiment behind that, right? In other words, you know, be a loving person. And should we be loving? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm not saying you don't need to be a loving person. But do we really think? Is, is our ego so staggering that we think that people merely looking at us is going to tell them about the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Just looking at how wonderful you are, I know the gospel. What does gospel mean? Anybody know what gospel means? Good news, right? So it's news. There's information, right? When you turn you know, on the news, there's a head there, right? And what are they doing? They're saying stuff. It's news and it needs to be conveyed. So that welled-up gratitude in Anna could not be contained. She was thanking the Lord, but that wasn't enough. Later on, Luke is going to write these words. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So it's, it's percolating in your heart, right? It's like this volcano, and it's about to erupt, and it's going to come out. And that was true of Anna as well. 
she would speak of Christ to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. I tend to think that might not have been a lot of people, at least from what I have read about Israel in the new, at the time Jesus was, was born. Maybe it was a lot, maybe it was a few, but I'll tell you this about Anna. Anna was a fountain. You know what I mean by a fountain, right? Like living waters are coming from her. She's praying, she's fasting, she's thanking God, and she's telling others. You wonder how many people over the course of the years came to her in that temple for her to pray, for her to fast, to hear whatever prophetic utterance she might have. Like they're like, that woman I need to talk to. I'm I'm having a rough day. I'm having a rough life. I'm having situations. Boy, she's been a widow all her life, and she seems to be doing really well. What's her secret? She wasn't a pastor. She wasn't an elder. But that didn't mean, by the way, that she didn't have more to offer than all the men in robes by which she was surrounded. You know, Jesus is going to talk about those men in robes in Matthew 23. He didn't have nice things to say about them. And let me tell you, having kind of built her up, this, what we're talking about, can be said of any woman, of any person, in any era. This can be you. It doesn't always seem like it. You know, this idea that she's going to share this redemptive message with everybody in Jerusalem who seems interested. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like people just aren't interested. But then sometimes when you open your mouth, you realize they're more interested than you thought they were. You know why? Because sometimes God prepares people's hearts to hear the message. We got to be ready to give it. All of us. We got to be ready to give that message. People are looking by the grace of God for redemption. They're looking to be ransomed. They're looking, if you will, in a biblical way to be purchased. They're looking to go home and be with their rightful owner. God God creates in people a discomfort with their current situation. Something is not right. You're, You're right. Something is not right. And there's only one way to make it right. This just gigantic, you know, Augustine called it this hole in your heart. There's only one answer for that hole in your heart. And Anna was willing to go, and here it is. Are you willing to go? Here it is. If you're a praying person like Anna, if night and day you are finding refuge in the true temple who is Christ, if if Christ is consuming your thoughts, if you get up and he is there, you go to bed and he is there, if you're seeking Christ, God can enlist you and will enlist you to be a fighter in his battle. He can enlist you to be a singer of his songs, a proclaimer of his redemption. 
And regardless of your birth certificate, let me tell you, that never gets old. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would be inspired by this message of this godly woman who's now been with you for so many years. We do pray, Father, that we would seek to be with you day and night, that you would be our ever-present help. And we do pray, Father, that having been with you, others would see and know that person has been with Christ. And that we would be willing to love them enough to convey to them that good news, that message of redemption that is found in the person and the work and the victory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.